Amen. We've done a little bit of singing together. I want to start out this morning by singing another song together, all right? This is a song that they sang in church when I first started going to church. So, in my book, that means it's old. Some of you guys might remember it. It goes like this. If you remember it, please sing it with me. Holiness, holiness is what I long for. Holiness is what I need. Holiness, holiness is what you want from me. Let's sing that again. We'll say purity. Purity, purity is what I long for. Purity is what I need. Purity, purity is what you want from me. Sing, take my life. So take my life and form it. Sing this to the Lord. Take my mind, transform it. Take my will, conform it to yours, to yours, O Lord. Amen. That's our prayer this morning. Take our lives, form them. Father, we want the holiness of your Son. We want your righteousness. We want your purity to be ours as we remain in Him. Amen. 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 We've been going through this series on 1 John, and we come today to what might be the most challenging passage in the entire epistle. 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 through 310. Can you please grab a Bible and turn with me to page 1022? As you turn there, um, really the theme of this entire passage, in a word, is holiness. The call on Christians to be holy as the Lord is holy. Or to use the language of the passage, we might say the theme is righteousness. John says in chapter 2, verse 29... If you know that He is righteous, if you know that Jesus is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. Another word we could use that we just sang is purity. Chapter 3, verse 3 says, Everyone who thus hopes in Him, who hopes in Jesus for final salvation, he says, purifies himself as Jesus is pure. In fact, John is so focused on the theme of holiness here that if we only had this passage and ignored the rest of the letter, which is never a good idea, we might come to the false conclusion that born-again Christians never sin. He has already said in chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And there's several other verses like that. And if you want to hear more on that topic about this tension between ongoing sin and obedience, I point you to the sermon from a few weeks back 
on walking in the light. You can check that one out if you're curious about that topic. I'm not going to re-preach it for you today. Now, um, but, but, but for this passage, really, I believe that the main theme is holiness, righteousness, purity. You can take your pick, though I doubt any of these words sound very attractive to modern ears. They didn't sound very attractive to ancient ears either. Before his confession, St. Augustine, when he was still living as a pagan philosopher and chasing after women, uh, famously prayed this wayward prayer. He said, Lord, make me pure, but not yet. <laughs> right? And I think that pretty much sums up our own attitudes toward holiness, if we're honest. We think of it as something that's probably good for us, like eating our vegetables, but not something that's actually attractive. Right? We believe that the way of holiness will actually lead to the suppression of our deepest desires, to the suppression of our deepest fulfillment, and not into them, not into the fulfillment of our deepest heart desires. But that same saint later on would say that our hearts are restless until they rest in Thee. That was the attitude of Christ. He spoke of holiness as a life filled with supernatural love and fullness of joy. That's what Jesus meant when He talked about holiness. John 15, verses 10 and 11 that we just heard read. He said, if you keep my commandments. That sounds like a hard thing. That sounds like vegetables. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you. Why? Jesus wants you to know. This is why I'm telling you this. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So for Jesus, holiness and happiness were like two sides of the same coin. When it comes to satisfying our heart's deepest desires, Jesus would say, pursue holiness. Take up your cross and follow me. Lose your life. Not so that it will be lost forever, but so that you might truly find life. When it comes to satisfying our heart's deepest desires, the theologian Christopher West contrasts the ways of the world with the ways of the church. He says what the world offers is the fast food diet. What he calls the fast food diet for the soul. It's a world of pornography and binge watching and social media hits and actual fast food, which is obviously not good for us. On the other hand, he said... The unfortunate thing is that oftentimes the only thing that the church is offering is the starvation diet. And he said, if you have to choose between the fast food diet and the starvation diet, you're going to choose the Big Mac every time. But Jesus says, he wants to lay before us a different alternative. Jesus says that he came that we might have joy to the full, a home cooked meal. A feast full of fresh foods. This is what holiness is really about. As J.I. Packer puts it, genuine holiness 
is genuine Christ-likeness. And genuine Christ-likeness is genuine humanness, the only genuine humanness that there is. See, sometimes we look at God's commands and we say, oh, well, you're, you're asking for me to not be a human, right? I'm, I'm only human. No, what God is calling us to is back to true humanity. The problem is, that we're, is not that we're only human. The problem is that we're not human enough. That's right. This work of holiness, of purifying us of sin, is central to the mission of Jesus. This is precisely why He came. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 5. It says that Jesus appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. So, Here, the mission of Jesus, the only sinless one, is described clearly and simply. He says he appeared in order to take away sins. Now, this means, first of all, that Jesus died as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. That's what 1 John 2, verse 2 says. And that by trusting in his sacrifice, we are born of God. And we're made children of God. But secondly, we know that the one who came to pay our debt of sin on the cross also stands in opposition to sinfulness. He wants us to be purified as he is pure. Chapter 3, verse 3. In Greek, this word pure refers to the necessary spotlessness of objects or persons involved in worship. And it's used here as an analogy for moral purity. In the words of that classic hymn, Rock of Ages, that we just sang, Jesus came to be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. That's why Jesus came, to save us from wrath, salvation, and to sanctify us, to make us pure. So we see that this sin-nullifying mission of Jesus is two-pronged, right? He came to atone for our sin through His sacrificial death, and He came to purify us from sin by His life-giving Spirit. Mm. These two purposes of Jesus are so well established in Scripture that they are beyond dispute. It's just that sometimes the biblical writers use different language for the same reality. So, for example, think of the word salvation. So this is a pretty important biblical word, salvation. Now, for the Apostle Paul, this word has three different connotations. Alright, there's a, there's a present There's an ongoing and there's a future. So, in the present, if we look to Jesus by faith, we can be justified. That is to say that we can be made righteous, declared righteous, declared not guilty before God's eyes even now. And we can be guaranteed that on the last day, God will say that this is my son, this is my daughter. But then there's also this other aspect of salvation. And sometimes Paul just said, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. What's he talking about? He's talking about being sanctified. So sanctification is the ongoing process of being transformed by the Spirit of Christ from one degree of glory to the next. Of of being made more and more like Jesus. 
Now, none of us uh, get completely sanctified in this life. Paul even said, um, not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. Even Paul the, Paul the Apostle said, I, I, this is, look, I'm not done, right? But he says, in the end, on the last day when Jesus comes back, in a moment, in the blink of an eye, those who know him will be glorified. And so glorification happens when Jesus returns and the final resurrection happens. And, and the Lord, what he does is he makes our bodily natures compatible with the spirit of God that lives within us. And we, we, we end up having resurrected bodies. And there's no long, longer this sort of tension between the spirit and the flesh. Right? We walk completely in a completely glorified state before the Lord. C.S. Lewis is famous for saying that um, if we saw a glorified human being, we'd be tempted to worship them. Because we are going to be like bright lights shining before God. Now, the interesting thing is that um, the Apostle John speaks of these same three realities. So this is Paul's language, but the Apostle John speaks of these same three realities, but he gives them fresh words. So instead of justification, he talks about rebirth. We hear that all over our passage today, being born of God. Instead of sanctification, he talks about purification. Right? And instead of being, uh, instead of talking about glorification, he talks about being like him. That is, being like Jesus, being fully like Jesus. All right? Look with me at verse 2. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now. So he's talking about our justification. He's saying, look, it already, already in, the, in the sort of like annals of heaven, you are God's children because you've accepted Christ as your Savior. You've accepted His atonement that He offered for you, so He's made you clean. He's given you a new status in heaven. And John wants to say, yeah, but it's, it's, but it's also, it's not just a legal thing. Your nature has been reborn so that you're a child of heaven. So we are children of God now. It's not just a legal fiction. Amen. And he says, and what we will be, he's talking about the future, what we will be has not yet appeared. See, we don't even know what our glorious selves will look like. Because it hasn't yet appeared. Paul says that our identities are hidden with God in Christ Jesus. But, says John, we know that when He appears, that is, at Jesus' second coming, at the resurrection of the just, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. We shall see Him as He is. And in that beautiful vision, in an instant, we'll be transformed to be like Him. That's what we will be. If you put your faith in Christ, Paul wants to say, once you get started on this, you continue in it. Those whom God foreknew, He justified. Those who He justified, He sanctifies. Those who He sanctifies, He also glorifies. Jesus says, none can snatch you from my hand. But salvation is not just justification. It's not just rebirth. It's actually this whole thing. This whole thing that God... The, the gospel is not just that God wants to forgive us of our sin, but He wants to put His Spirit in us and make us holy as the Lord is holy. Amen. 
Do you see how Paul and John are essentially saying the same thing? They, just, they both give this threefold picture of salvation, which includes a new status, an ongoing work of holiness, and this final work of transformation. Now you might ask, if Paul and John mean the same thing, why do they sometimes use different language? And I think the first thing that we could say is that the gospel is so glorious. It's like a diamond with many facets. And it takes more than one image to do it full justice. In fact, in verse 8 of this passage, John gives a second reason why Jesus came, which is a variation of what he already said in verse 5. Remember, he had said in verse 5 that Jesus came in order to take away sins. And it seemed like you could put like an emphatic punctuation mark after that statement. It seemed like, okay, well, that sums everything up. I mean, like, that's the gospel. Jesus came to take away sins. Now, there's nothing more, more we can say. But there is more to say. John says in verse 8... The reason the Son of God appeared... Oh, wait. Hold on a second. I thought you already told us about this. No, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I like this idea. Jesus came to destroy. In other words, Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the destroyer. To deal a death blow to death. By his own sin-bearing death, He has torn the curtain that separated us from God's presence, undoing Satan's work that banished us from the Garden of Eden, right? He's destroying the works of the devil. And by his ongoing work of purification, he's making us fit for glory. He's cleansing us of all the residue of the fall. He's destroying the works of the devil. So should we describe Jesus' saving work as a sacrifice for sin? In theological terms, substitutionary atonement? Or as a victory over the devil? Well, according to the Apostle John, the answer is yes. Because he he preaches both in this very passage. We still do this today. Different groups of Christians sometimes use different words to describe the same spiritual reality, right? So, for example, I believe that when you ask, when, when, when a Baptist asks you if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, if they say, Look, I know you go to church, but do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? I believe that they're essentially asking you the same thing that a charismatic is asking you when they ask you, do you have the Holy Spirit? I mean, unless, unless by that they mean, have you spoken in tongues or something like that. But if they're just asking you, do you have the Holy Spirit? Do you know you have the Holy Spirit? They're asking essentially the same question that a Baptist is asking when they say, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Because a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is not a personal relationship with the embodied second person of the Trinity, who's now seated at the right hand of the Father. It's a personal relationship with the Spirit of Christ, who takes up residence in us when we put our faith in the Son. Amen? Amen. So if you know what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you know, that, 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 that he walks with us and, and there's a sense of his guidance and there's a sense of him pointing us to what's right and what's wrong. And we have this sense of intimacy with God. Then you have the Holy Spirit. That's what it is. So we can see that both in the Bible and in 20th century, 21st century Christianity. We just went to the future. <laughs> We sometimes use different terminology to describe the same spiritual reality. Amen? Amen. But not all disagreements are just a matter of words. Sometimes they go deep 
to the heart of the faith. And that's what's going on in this passage today. In John's day, there were some who thought that you could have genuine faith without it leading to good works. There were people who thought that. That you could receive justification without ongoing sanctification. That you could be forgiven without any intention to be purified. In essence, that you could have Jesus as Savior without having Him as your Lord. This erroneous view has gone by many names over the years. Bonhoeffer called it cheap grace because it was grace without any commitment to discipleship. The Apostle John here just simply calls it lawlessness. I knew a young man who grew up in church. He had all the right answers to Bible questions. But around the age of 22, he met a non-Christian girl. It was the first beautiful woman that ever really paid attention to him. And before long, he had left the fellowship, abandoned all purity, and was living with her, even though they weren't married. And I remember he had no shame about it. He felt no sense of warning before God. He believed that he still had a relationship with God because of his faith. But friends, that kind of bold-faced sin is not what biblical faith looks like. I was not surprised to learn a few years later that he had abandoned Christianity altogether. And I wonder if some of us try to do this. That we try to separate having a relationship with Christ from a commitment to obey His commands. John is trying to say that you can't have one without the other. This remains a widespread error today. An error that the New Testament authors reject In a unified chorus. James actually wrote a whole epistle about it. He said, faith without works is dead. Even the demons believe, he said, and shudder. They believe without commitment to the Lord. In our reading today from Romans 6, verses 1 through 2, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? This was one of the teachings at the time. He's He's like, so there's this idea out there that If we keep sinning, it makes God's grace even more amazing. By no means, he says. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Say as a parenthetical note that when Mu Chen, who read that reading, was was being baptized, I was telling him, when you go under the water, it's like you're dying with Jesus. You're dying to sin. And we were practicing it. And we're over in this uh, baptismal, which is concrete, and he trusted me a little bit too much before there was water in there. And it's like, okay, we're practicing. He's like, goes down. I like have to catch him. I'm like, that's not what it means by dying with Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise, here in 1 John 3, 7, it says, Little children, let no one deceive you. So people are trying to deceive us with this false teaching. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. As he is righteous. That's what he says. Now to be clear, none of these people are saying that we're saved by our works. That's not what they're saying. All of them would agree that we're saved by grace through faith. It's a free gift from God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, it says. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. But the point is that biblical faith always leads to faithfulness. 
It's never deedless faith. Biblical faith stands in contrast to cheap grace. On this point, even the greatest preachers of grace are in agreement. As Paul puts in Galatians 5, 6, he says this. He says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through works of love. Because that's what faith does. It, we are saved by faith alone, but it's, it's a faith that expresses itself through works of love. Or as the great reformer Martin Luther put it, he said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Right? This is why the Apostle John, who's another great preacher of grace, this is why he can give such a sober warning as we find in verses 9 and 10. He says this, look there with me. He says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. In other words, if we are truly God's offspring, if we've truly been born of God, and the seed of God's Word and His Spirit abides in us, then sin becomes a contradiction to our new nature. Now, some of this might sound, sound like kind of mystical, and it is, but I want to be clear that you don't need extraordinary experiences to be a Christian. You just need... Ordinary, extraordinary kind of experiences. <laughs> what I mean to say is you don't need extraordinary experiences like physical healings or visions or speaking in tongues. Those may come, but you don't need them to be a Christian. But you do need the ordinary, extraordinary experiences that come with being a child, with, a child of God, with having a relationship with Jesus. Namely, things like having this genuine relationship with the Father, regularly leaning on the cross of Christ for forgiveness, and an ongoing experience of being purified by the Holy Spirit. These things are basic experiences for all Christians. J.I. Packer says that when we are in Christ, natural life is supernaturalized as the Holy Spirit makes Christ present to us and reproduces in us the God-oriented desires, aims, attitudes, and behavior patterns that, we, that, that were seen in Christ's own perfect humanity when He was on earth. Hmm. This is deep stuff, but this is what Jesus is talking about when He talks about abiding in the vine. I want to quote at length from Packer from his book, Rediscovering Holiness. He tries to put into words what it's, what it's like for a born-again Christian to be stuck in a pattern of sin. He writes that it does, quote, deep violence to our own changed nature. In doing what we think we like, we are actually doing what our own renewed heart, if we would only let it speak, tells us that it dislikes intensely. He goes on to say that the born-again heart cannot love what it knows God hates. So these Christians are actually behaving unnaturally occupying themselves in activities against which their own inner nature revolts. And he concludes, such behavior is always bad medicine, producing sadness, tension, and discontent, if not worse. Now, I wonder if you've ever experienced this sense of tension or discontent that Packer's describing. The dissonance of embracing a sinful pattern of behavior... That's in constant tension with the Spirit of Christ within you. I know I have. 
when Carissa and I first started dating, we spent two years living contrary to God's commands for our relationship. It produced constant tension and fighting. We almost didn't make it. We both reached the end of our own strength to resist sin because we were not truly abiding in Jesus. As he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. But then we experienced a breakthrough that changed our entire relationship and really the rest of our lives. Everything that I hold dear, my wife, my kids, the ministry he called us into, were dependent on God breaking through in our life. And after this breakthrough, we walked in purity in our relationship for over two and a half more years before we got married. Now, how did this breakthrough happen? I want to close this morning by talking about how Christian morality is fueled by Christian spirituality. Our sanctification doesn't require earning, but it does ask for effort. Purify yourselves Mm -hmm. as He is pure. Mm -hmm. But it's a certain kind of effort that is not reliant on ourselves, but reliant on the vine, because apart from Him we can do nothing. For For us, this meant three things at this time. I can remember first... We began spending more time in places where we knew we would encounter the presence of God. So worship, Bible study, hanging out with certain people that were walking in step with the Spirit. Second, we brought our struggles into the light of our Christian community. We confessed what was going on to some faithful friends for accountability, prayer, and support. And third, we began to practice daily scripture study on our own. Psalm 119 asks the question, how can a young man keep his way pure? And then he answers his own question. He says, by guarding your life according to his word. So what what ended up happening is when you're constantly in the presence of God and your heart is being inflamed with love for God, there becomes this incompatibility between what's happening there in that worship setting or in that place of scripture or in that time of fellowship with the betrayal of that love over here. Does that make sense? That's how Christian spirituality fuels Christian ethics. It comes from love for God that he gives us as we are in His presence. In fact, genuine love for others begins to flow as well. I remember I started to think, ooh, I don't want to do anything that's going to put a barrier between Carissa and the Lord. That wouldn't be a loving thing. Again, for the Christian, morality is fueled by spirituality. Now some of you might be thinking, well, I've tried that. How many times am I allowed to mess up? Like as many as seven times? And I would tell you on good authority that it's 77 times. The point is that there's no set number of mess-ups. That'd be a really precarious way of interpreting this passage or interpreting First John. It's like, you have this many mess-ups and then you're out. That's not what John is getting at. However, what he's trying to say, if we've truly come to know the grace of God through Christ, we won't mess up forever. We'll experience breakthroughs. We'll experience progress in this life as we press on to final glory. It's not going to look the same. Our journey is not going to look the same for every person. But we press on. So this word of the gospel, again, is two-pronged. On the one hand, the Father always longs for us to come back to Him. Even if we've traveled far, far from home and squandered our inheritance. Even if the mistake that we made was a long time ago, but we still haven't repented for it. 
We've still never asked God to forgive us for our disobedience way back then. That's how a pattern gets encrusted into a family, by the way, and gets passed on and passed on and passed on because we don't repent of our sins. But on the other hand, John puts it here. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Don't connect, don't disconnect the righteousness of Christ that's given to us here and the ongoing imputation of that righteousness, the the ongoing working out of that righteousness into our lives here. That's what this community was doing and that's what he's saying you cannot do. That's what Paul is saying in our reading. In Romans 6, you cannot do. That's what Jesus is saying in our reading from John 15. You cannot do. Do we know, do, do we have this in our minds yet that this is not Christianity, the severing of justification from sanctification? We have to have that clear. It's such a widespread heresy today. In other words, in the gospel, we find a tension between God's amazing grace and our ability to abuse His his grace through self-deception. The point is that God's true children still have plenty of sins to confess, but they don't take lightly the grace of God. Because anyone who thus hopes in Him, John says in 3, verse 3, anyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. There's no other way. The way of holiness that Jesus invites us into is properly basic to the Christian life. It's also if we had eyes to see the life of fullness of joy and true humanity. I can tell you, I can testify to you that me and Carissa's relationship, as we were disobeying the Lord, was a disaster. Mm. And it was leading to disaster. <laughs> it wasn't until we started walking with the Lord by His power, by His strength, that we started to experience real life in our relationship. Fullness of joy. <clears throat> Holiness is an invitation to a banquet in the midst of a sea of fast food. Mm. We can trust Jesus, the vine, who came not just to take away the guilt of sin, but to put his spirit in us, that we might begin to walk in newness of life. Amen.